It's quarter miles travel, where the adventure begins when you reach into your pocket. There's a story behind every state quarter design, a story that can take you on an adventure of your own, from one-of-a-kind landmarks to hometown heroes. Start your journey with Anita and Olivia, one quarter mile at a time. Hi, this is Anita Thomas, radio personality and on-air host of Travel Bags with Anita and Friends. I'm also the creator of Quarter Miles, a travel program with a bit of a different twist. I started this program on my radio show over a year and a half ago. It's all about being inspired to explore our country based on the U.S. Mint state quarters. Most of us were part of that rage of collecting them back in the day. And if you check your pockets or even your sofa cushions, you'll find a few of them waiting to inspire you today. Now, I've been asked, what made you think of a travel segment based on a quarter? I like to share that it was all a part of my annual review of what's been a good fit and what would make programming more interesting, entertaining, and educational. What would inspire our radio friends to go visit destinations around the country? And I feel that Quarter Miles is really all about pride. Pride in our respective states as well as our country. The state quarters feature all that is great about each state. And after all, each state selected what they felt best represented them. As a flight attendant with Pan Am, I travel to over 90 countries, and while there are beautiful destinations all around the world, I wanted to highlight all of the natural beauty of the United States, the history, landmarks, and interesting people who make our country an exceptional place to visit. So come along as we start this adventure, and check your pockets, pull out that quarter and flip it over, and Quarter Mouse Travel will take it from there. We'll help you turn that quarter into an adventure. Hello and welcome to Quarter Miles Travel. I'm Anita Thomas. And I'm Olivia Bartson. Today we're looking at another design from the U.S. Mint State Quarter Program. These designs were selected to represent state history, culture, and tradition. And on Quarter Miles Travel, we investigate the stories that are behind each of these designs. Louisiana State Quarter features a number of significant topics, including wildlife and music. But in our first Louisiana episode, we're looking at the representation of the greatest real estate deal in history. In 1803, Thomas Jefferson purchased the Louisiana Territory from Napoleon Bonaparte. This acquisition doubled the country's size and made it one of the biggest nations in the world. But this wasn't the beginning of Louisiana's story. That's right, Olivia. Starting in 1699, the Louisiana Territory saw the rise of French and Spanish colonies together with free and enslaved West Africans, mostly from Senegal and Gambia, 
and in addition to Native Americans who had occupied the area, a new culture formed. From the combined customs, languages, and beliefs of these ethnic groups, the Creole identity was established. Even now, hundreds of years later, there is something distinct about Louisiana. Anyone who lives there or who has visited will tell you so. They certainly will. And by the time of the Louisiana Purchase, those who identified as Creole had been living in Louisiana for many generations. They had their own way of life entirely separate from that of the United States, unified primarily by their use of the French language and practice of Roman Catholic faith. Creoles saw Americans as foreigners, and the culture clash became increasingly evident as Americans occupied Louisiana. That's really interesting to think of Louisiana like that, because now it is so much a part of the United States. Despite the forced assimilation into American culture, including English being the mandatory language in all classrooms and the unnatural separation of Creoles by race, the Creole identity prevailed and remains a crucial part of the Louisiana way of life. Creole food, language, and traditions are alive and celebrated today. And luckily, there are still opportunities to learn about the complex way of life that existed in Louisiana territory before it became part of the United States. Laura Plantation in Vacherie is referred to as Louisiana's Creole Heritage Site. It is ranked as the best history tour in the United States by the Lonely Planet and with good reason. Visitors become fully immersed in the story of Creole identity as it developed on a sugar plantation. We talk with Joseph Dunn about what it means to be Creole and how it shaped Louisiana into the state it is today. The Lara Plantation Museum houses a permanent exhibit dedicated to the personal stories of enslaved people on the plantation. Individual accounts, photographs, and artifacts were tracked down from what was available at the plantation and as far away as the National Archives in France, Olivia. Yes, and these items are presented in a series of four rooms. The first three focus on religion, division of labor, and the Civil War. And the fourth room showcases a lot of these documents and photographs that they found that kind of help visitors put faces to names. Listen as Joseph explains what it means to be Creole and as he guides us through the museum and shares one of the biographies the museum was able to trace. So Laura is a Creole plantation. In the 19th century in Louisiana, I want you to think about this word Creole almost like a national identity. In the same way that you think about American or Australian or Canadian or French as national identities. Now, what does that mean? That means that Creoles are people who were born here in Louisiana who speak French, Creole, or Spanish, and maybe even all three, and who are Roman Catholic. Their Creole identity is what sets them apart from Americans, because we have to recall that Americans are foreigners, and Americans are immigrants here in Louisiana in the early 19th century. In Louisiana, Creoles are white, Creoles are black, Creoles are in between. It has nothing to do with the color of their skin, but everything to do with where they're born, the language they speak, and the faith that they practice. Beyond this idea of identity, there's also Creole culture in Louisiana. Well, that brings together elements from three different groups of people, Native Americans, West Africans, Europeans. They all live right here together as elsewhere in uh, this colony. Right here behind me is a house that was built in 1805 in the middle of an Pisa Indian village. The Native Americans had been here for about 100 years before a French military officer had this house built in 1805. 
in the middle of the village. And the Indians are going to stay here until around 1915 or so, working now in the exterior of this new economy and society of the sugar farm. Right? The French government begins importing West African slaves into Louisiana to build the colony in the 1720s. And most of those people were brought from the region that is today the countries of Senegal and Gambia. And of course, there are many of their descendants who still live here up and down the river. And for nearly 200 years, two European families ran this as a sugar farm. That's sugar growing in the fields out there. It'll be about 12 feet high when it's harvested in October and November. But the first of these European families is French, Laura's family. And their name is Duparc Locoul. The second family is of German origin. Their name is Wagespat. But they arrived here in the early colonial period. Because French was the dominant language and culture here, within one generation, they'd been completely absorbed and assimilated into the dominant language and culture. And so their descendants speak French almost exclusively in this house until they sell and leave it in 1984. The Creole houses were usually built like this. They're raised up and they face a body of water. In this case, it's the Mississippi River there behind you. The levees back there were not built until the late 1920s. The river flooded every spring, but this property has never gone underwater since this house was built. They also raise the house up because it gets hot in Louisiana in the summertime. With a house raised up, there was sometimes a good breeze blowing through to keep everybody nice and cool. The bright colors are all original. In the early 20th century, you pass in front of a house out here, you could know who was living inside. Before 1921, 85% of the people along this river were still speaking French almost exclusively. My own great-grandparents did not like the other people very much. They called them les Américains, the Americans. So if you pass in front of a house, it was so brightly colored you knew they were speaking French inside. White houses usually had Americans living in them. Everything changed here in 1921, and that's because the English-speaking majority, the Americans in the state legislature up in Baton Rouge, ratified a new state constitution, and they imposed the English as the mandatory language of public education and state services. So what happened? From one day to the next, French is relabeled a foreign language in Louisiana, and the Creoles who had run this place politically, socially, and economically since the founding of the colony in 1699 were suddenly being treated as second-class citizens by the Americans. And so the French, the Creoles, they started repainting their houses white to show that they were being forcibly assimilated into the English language and into the American mainstream. We began restorations here back in 1993. This house had been empty for about nine years because the last family sold it in 1984. There were cows roaming all around in the raised basement. The house was white. These are the original colors we found and we repainted them all. Let's see, all the Victorian elements on the front were added in the early 20th century. But if you take that off and you imagine one very simple staircase coming straight down the middle of the front gallery, there you see classic Creole architecture. You don't find houses like this really elsewhere in the United States. There are a few up in Missouri. But you do find them everywhere in the Caribbean and in West Africa. And that's our big clue. Because in those places, you have the same kind of climate and you have the same cultural blends among native people, West Africans and Europeans that we have right here in South Louisiana. The tour we do here is not about this house. It's not about dishes and it's not about furniture. We talk about people here and we're lucky to know a lot about them. Because Laura, who is the great-granddaughter of the founders of this place, wrote her memoirs for her children up in St. Louis in the 1930s. When we found Laura's memoirs, those actually led us to France, to the National Archives of that country in Paris, 
where we found a whole treasure of documents about this place and about Laura's family. And here more recently, in local, state, and even Catholic Church archives, we've uncovered much more information about the Africans. What these enslaved people's lives were like here before the Civil War, what happened to them during the Civil War, and even after emancipation. So we're going to take a walk in the footsteps of four generations of one Louisiana Creole family. And you're going to see that the members of this family are white, they are black, they are in between, they are free, and they are enslaved. And they're all members of the same family. And these people lived here in very complex and very complicated contexts and relationships and situations that go way beyond anything that any of us can imagine today. Now let's listen as Joseph describes the museum on the property. And so the idea here was to look at the community of enslaved people here. Because generally speaking, when we're talking about these historical events, we're talking about these contexts, you hear the slaves, in quotes, sort of as an ensemble. Right? And you don't get the idea that there are actually individuals in there or that there are different work skills, there are different personalities, and that there's, there's a whole community. It's a village. It's a community of people. And so the approach to this was to look at, as much as possible, individual people, individual skills, and how the dynamics worked among these people, not only among themselves, but also with the uh, people who owned them as property and also owned this, this farm. So it's divided into different thematics. So you have the skilled labor bit here. On this side, you've got health and medicine because you know, people are trying to take care of uh, themselves. Religion, agriculture, the Civil War, domestic life, Union soldiers. What happens to these people after the Civil War? Um, and in this room over here is all about the slave trade. So there we have um, uh, transaction documents, and that represents just a tiny sample of uh, what we've been able to uncover. Um, so there are on these walls, as much as possible, some uh, pretty developed biographies of some of these enslaved people. Generally speaking, we have an idea that it's not possible to research or to build family trees or to um, have uh, biographies for people who were enslaved. We have encountered quite the opposite. It is a lot of work, it's a giant puzzle, and every answer leads to 10 more questions. And so it's a giant rabbit hole that you go down. And sometimes you might be on one path, trying to research one person, and then you get dog-legged, um, and you find something else, and then that connects to somebody else, and you go down that path. So it's just this giant sort of web of trying to put these kinds of stories together. And it's an ongoing, evolving research project. It's never static, and it never has been since the, since the very beginning. So the uh, very first enslaved people that we knew about from here, um, Laura actually writes about in her memoirs, and we'll tell you uh, some of those stories during the tour. But also over time, as the research began to develop itself, as we uh, found Laura's memoirs by hazard, basically, in St. Louis and Missouri, how Laura's memoirs led us to the French National Archives in Paris. Because after the Civil War, there's a split in this family. Because for these French families in Louisiana, after the Civil War, they have decisions to make. Are they going to stay here and become American, or are they going to go back to France and re-become French? So in this family, there's a split. Laura stays here, 
half of her family goes back to France. And so it was the daughter of the family who went back there. So she had the family photographs. She had the documents. And a lot of that stuff ended up in the French National Archives. So from the family in France, we were actually able to get the last notebook, which was the slave register from here, from 1863. Um, and so that then begins to lead us to local courthouses, to the notarial archives, to begin researching, the, um, to begin researching transactions. Right, buying and selling of, of, of human beings. Um, and those are Spanish language documents, they're French language documents. As we move closer to the Civil War, there are going to be some of them in English. Um, but um, one of the really important things to remember here is that this is not the American South. It's an extension of the French colonial experience. So these people, both free and enslaved, are living outside the parameters of what we generally think of as the American South. They're speaking French. They're speaking Creole. Some of them are speaking Spanish. For them, Americans are foreigners. Americans are immigrants. And that's even, that dynamic even plays over into the enslaved population. Because for the Creole slaves who are French-speaking and Catholic, American slaves are foreigners for them. And they don't immediately integrate. It only happens one or two generations later. And we begin to see that in how these uh, unions are formed, how families are formed, and the makeups of, of, of these groups. So it's, it's a very dynamic society uh, that we're talking about with lots of, of things happening. Now, recently, within the last two years or so, a great, um, amazing thing for us who work in this, this world has happened. The Civil War pension records were opened up. So up until about two years ago, a lot of the first-hand accounts, or most of them, that we're getting from people who had been slaves were coming from the, um, the slave narratives that had been done in the 1940s. But we have to think about, too, who were those people being interviewed in the 1940s? They were elderly people in the American South, English speakers, who had been enslaved as children. So their memories of that slavery experience were limited to their childhoods and to afterwards. But with the Civil War pension records, you have men in the 1890s, early 20th century, who actually fought in the war. And when they're fighting in the war, that's when their memories are most vivid because they're teenagers and they're in their 20s. So if you think about your own self, when are your most vivid memories? When you're in your teens and in your 20s. You can smell colors, basically, right? Everything is very vibrant. And so you have these men now telling their stories. And they have to recount over and over again who they were, who owned them, who were their parents, what kinds of work were they doing on the plantations before they went off to fight in the Civil War, what were they doing in the war. And these are very, very vivid and detailed memories. And they're not saying these stories one time. To use a, a modern term, they're being extremely vetted, right? Um, because the government is trying to establish the veracity of their claims for these pensions as veterans of the Civil War. So they're very, very vivid. Um, and so we can get some really good information about who these men were, not only the men, but also the women. Because the widows of some of these men who had been soldiers in the Union Army are also going to testify. Um, 
And so that's where we're able to put stories together like these over here in this part of the exhibit where we see the heading Union Soldiers, right? And over there we have several short little biographies with photographs when we can find them of men who had been enslaved on this farm who went off to fight in the Civil War as Union soldiers who then came back here after the war. And so we run into lots of questions because we get this general idea when we're studying history and this very kind of restricted perspectives of it. We think that the Civil War was over. All of the enslaved people left the farms. They went off and had wonderful new lives. We know that it didn't happen like that. Um, and so when we, th when we think about these people as individuals with wives, with children, with families, with things that they know, with their language restrictions also, because a lot of them aren't American. They don't speak English. This is where their home is. And so they come back to this community on this farm, and they reintegrate into this community, and many of them just take up the same jobs that they had when they were enslaved. They're sugar makers, they're working in the fields, they seems as if they're women, um, and they continue their lives here. And then we see um, moving into the, the new uh, economic system of sharecropping, sharecropping in the company store system, um, which we'll talk a little bit more about on the, on the actual tour. Um, so we've got the Civil War over here, we've got the Union soldiers. There are some famous people with connections to this farm as well. That's Domino's uh, grandparents had been enslaved on the neighboring plantation. So if you imagine after the Civil War the financial and the social upheaval of what's happening, it's absolute chaos. And so you have formerly enslaved people from neighboring plantations who were then moving around because they're trying to, to form new communities with each other. Some of them have left, some of them come back, and it's just total chaos. So Fats Domino's grandparents move from the farm right next to us onto this property. His parents are born here, and then Fats Domino is actually born in New Orleans in 1928, shortly after his parents had left from here to go uh, look for a new life in the city. One of the early jazz musicians, um, one of the early trumpeters in the jazz movement was named Freddie Kippard, and his grandmother, Amélie, Peterson had been born here and was a cook on the plantation. His mother had been a seamstress. Uh, Freddie was born in New Orleans, but he was one of the inspirations for Louis Armstrong. Um, so Louis Armstrong actually talks about him in some of his memoirs as being, you know, this great trumpeteer. And you know, but all these people living with the with the legacy of of of, of this place um, and their families who had come from here. Um, we also will talk on the tour about um, what was happening between the white men who own this place and the enslaved female people on this farm. So we will learn on this tour that the only direct descendants of this family who remain in North America are actually coming from the black side, children who had been fathered by the owner of the plantation with one of the enslaved women. And we are now in regular contact with some of them. We're actually planning to do a family reunion for them here next year. So they've reached out as well. Um, we find stuff not only here in the United States, we also find stuff in Europe. Um, right over here, we have the biography of a woman who is named Lucy. Lucy's story is pretty incredible. We don't actually talk about it on the tour because we just... Our challenge here is that we have so much information 
about these people and about the complexity of it that to condense it all down into sort of consumable pieces during a 75-minute tour is just it's impossible for us because we have so much information to cover. But that's why we put the, the, the exhibit together so that people can have this other background information. But Lucy, right over here on this wall, is an interesting story. Lucy is American. Because again, we're distinguishing American from Creole here. Americans speak English. They're not Catholic. Creoles speak French or Creole, and they are Catholic. They're different groups of people, right? So Lucy is an American slave. She was brought here from Virginia. She was eight years old, and she was sold in a lot with her mother and her younger brother. Now, during the 1820s, 1830s, there was a great economic crisis on the East Coast, and there was also um, a, an economic depression in the tobacco market. Okay? And so economically speaking, from a purely scientific economic perspective. Enslaved people were the most liquid capital in the economy. So they were the most expendable. So any time that a slave owner needed immediate access to money, the slaves were the first thing to go. And so at that point, you've got this economic depression happening on the East Coast. But here, there's a boom in sugar. So it works out, economically speaking, for the people on the East Coast to begin liquidating enslaved people and selling them to Louisiana to work in the sugar fields, right? So that's what happens here. Lucy, with her mother and her younger brother, is bought in New Orleans at the slave market. So they're brought out here. Let's just try to imagine Lucy for a second. She's eight years old. She's coming from Virginia. She doesn't speak French. And she's sent out here to live on this farm amidst a whole bunch of French and Creole speakers. She's probably never even heard French. She's never heard French. She's never heard, she has, she has no idea what this is. It's a completely foreign world for her, right? So she is bought to be the companion slave child of Laura's aunt, because Laura's not born yet at this point, right? And Laura's aunt's name is Emma. Emma is the typical spoiled daughter of the plantation owner. So Lucy becomes her companion slave child. So they basically grow up together. Lucy's going to learn to speak French. She eventually converts to Catholicism. And when Lucy gets married, and when Lucy, when Emma gets married with the French aristocrat, Lucy is going to go and live with him in Paris. Now, let's think about Lucy here for a second. Lucy now is leaving Louisiana. She's going to live in Paris. Slavery has been abolished in France in 1848. But there's an international convention between the United States and France that says that any enslaved people who are traveling with American citizens in Europe remain enslaved. But even if Lucy had wanted to try to escape, what was she going to do? She was a woman of color by herself in Paris in the 1850s. What would she have done, right? I, I, I try sometimes to lead students in these kinds of talks and sort of try to imagine, because we all want to imagine that if we had been enslaved, we'd try to escape. But what did that mean for somebody? And so Lucy's there. 
But they come back to Louisiana just before the Civil War, and the war breaks out, and she gets trapped like everybody else. They can't go back to Europe. They're just basically trapped here. Okay? So she ends up staying with the family, Lucy does, and living with them in the big townhouse in the French Quarter. She eventually gets married, and with her husband, they're going to buy a house in another section of New Orleans. And we don't know, we have no documents to tell us whether Lucy had children. If she did, they didn't survive to adulthood. And we know this because her husband predeceased her. But when she died, the property that they owned together went to her husband's nephew. So if they had had children, the children would have inherited that. So, but there's a photograph of Lucy right here that we just discovered in Paris last year, which tells us, and it's because, again, after the Civil War, half of this family goes back to France. So she was in the family photograph album in Paris. But now when she went to Paris with them, mm -hmm. would she have known that in Europe that, that Most blacks likely. Were, were free? She would have Most known likely. That. Most likely she okay. would have known that. So people talked amongst themselves, and people, people knew. And we also have very generally an idea that enslaved people were ignorant and that they were illiterate. And that's not the case. Well, that information was kept. Information was kept from them. Yeah. But they also, um, and, and, and by ignorant I mean uninformed. Mm -hmm. um, but we know that that's really not the case. Because even rewinding back to 1811, when there was the largest slave revolt in the United States that happened just down the river from here, those people knew what had happened in Saint-Domingue, which is now Haiti. They had, they had learned about that because in 1809, there was a 10,000 refugees from Saint-Domingue who were both free and enslaved arrived in Louisiana. So people knew things. There were networks and people knew things. So certainly she would have known that, that you know, under other circumstances she was, she was free in Paris. But what were her options? What were her choices? And so a lot of the... When, when we do talks, for example, um, with student groups, we try to have these very, very in-depth conversations with them to, to, to contextualize things and try to have people, help people understand what was going on and what were the different motivations for, for these people, both free and enslaved, in this, in this world that is today, thankfully, well beyond our, our grasp. We can go into the next room here, and this is where we have the, the transactions. All along this wall are photocopies with translations into English of the transactions that were buying and selling of people. Some of them are in Spanish, some of them are in French, and eventually they move uh, into English as we get closer toward the Civil War. And this is really just a sample of the, uh, of the people who uh, were here, because we're able to document between... 1808, which was the first inventory of enslaved people here, and the Civil War, no less than 400 individual names of people who moved through this property as slaves. However, the stable population of corporate slaves, so those are the ones that are owned by the business, is between 150 and 200 people. And we, we, we uh, separate here the concept of corporate slave who are owned by the plantation and personal slaves who are owned by individual members of the family. There's a distinction there. Can you say a little bit more about that distinction? Because I think most people just think they were owned by like a 
family or our master. Well, because we're in Louisiana, because we're in Louisiana, our historical context and our laws are a little bit different, right? And so what this family did in the aftermath of 1803, because in 1803, Louisiana was sold to the United States, and all of the paradigms changed for property ownership. Many of these properties had been granted as... um, Uh, by the crown, by the French crown or by the Spanish crown. But after um, Louisiana was sold to the United States, um, there was a redistribution of land because now Louisiana is coming, I mean not Louisiana, now the United States is coming in and they're giving things and they're, they're changing things around, okay? So in the French Napoleonic Code, and this is an oversimplification, but it just, it's, it's easier to understand. In the French Napoleonic Code, there is a thing called forced heirship. So that means that you cannot disinherit any of your children. So if you have 10 children, all of them are going to inherit equally a piece of the property. So um, in order to get around these forced heirship laws, what would happen in many cases is that these people would form family corporations along the American model so that the property ownership moved from the individual family members to the corporation so that they could protect their assets and keep them consolidated, right? So in this case, you have the company for this place. You have the company that is buying enslaved people, and then you have individual family members who are buying slaves as well. So personal ownership and company ownership are separate. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense, but I just never thought about it but, and I don't know that that's a model that existed elsewhere in the country. It's a model that existed here in Louisiana, in French Louisiana. It does. Exactly. So, I mean, you're creating an LLC so that, you know, if, you, if you're doing a walking tour in the French Quarter and somebody trips on the sidewalk, they don't sue you. That, so, you know, that's, that's yeah. Exactly. That, that's it. So. And then some of the things that you see here, would these be artifacts that the slaves would have used? Or would they have used them? Um, would they have used them in their work? Or are there some things that they would have used in their personal? Well, right here we drum. are specifically looking at a drum that is most likely from Haiti. So these are not objects that are specific to this property, but they are things that you might have found on a plantation. A drum like this, for example, would have been used. You know, they'd have played those in the early evenings as they're sitting around, or on Sundays. Uh, when they had, you know, what little leisure time they might have had. So, um, yeah, uh, we have right over here a, um, it's a big hunk of wooden cypress. It's from this trunk of a cypress tree. And it's hollowed out so that it looks like a giant bowl. And we have, it's basically a big mortar and pestle. And this is for pounding rice. Because rice was one of the first crops that was grown here um, in the early colonial period. And that's because it was to feed the enslaved people and also to feed the colonists. And there were people brought specifically from West Africa during that time period because they were very good at rice cultivation and they were very good at building things, and we're going to hear more about that when we do the tour. That it would have been rice that they probably were growing in Africa. So. Uh, very, very likely. Very likely. Because we do know that um, they were bringing seeds and they were bringing samples from, from Africa to Louisiana, most specifically okra, mm-hmm. which in Bantu is gombu which is where we get our gombo soup from. Um, so, yeah, when we went in, in the Louisiana Creole language, 
in the Louisiana French language, and even in international French. If you go into a supermarket in France today, and there is okra in the bin, uh, in the produce section, you're going to see the word gombo, um, because that's because they're importing it from Africa, and they, they call it gombo in Africa. Now, how would things have been brought over? So how would uh, rice seeds or bean seeds or gumbo or, or gumbo or okra seeds have been brought over? Because I would think the slaves didn't have time to kind of grab things. So. No, they didn't. But there also there there are many many legends and and ideas about that. There are some people who will say that the uh, they were bringing uh, seeds over in their hair that the women were putting the seeds in their hair. I don't really know that that's you know substantiated. But when we're also thinking about the um, transatlantic or the triangular trade, you've got raw material, and I'll use the term of the time period, which is the enslaved people who were sent to the New World to produce raw material, sugar, cotton, rice, that's then shipped back to Europe. So you've got the ships moving in a triangular um, uh, pattern from Europe to Africa to the New World and back to Europe. And uh, so obviously at some point during there, they're also going to be discovering food ways. And they're going to be bringing products from Africa or seeds or things that they can grow here because the climate's similar. In addition to the museum, visitors can tour the plantation grounds to learn the story of the Dupac-Lacou family who oversaw the plantation's growth for several decades. Guillaume Dupac was a French naval veteran of the American Revolution. He acquired the property in 1804, but died four years later. His wife, Nanette, raised their three children to run the plantation's finances and daily operations. It was the beginning of a four-generations-long family operation with direct descendants still alive today. Start the tour with Joseph and the story of how Gloom obtained the plantation property. Laura's great-grandparents, the founders of the plantation. Guillaume Duparc was born in Normandy on the western coast of France, and as a young man, he had a very bad temper. He was 20 years old when he killed a family friend in a duel. Well, Guillaume's father was so angry, he exiled his son into the French Navy, which in the late 18th century was considered a fate worse than death. But Guillaume was a very good sailor, and he came across the Atlantic with a group of French soldiers to fight in four battles of the American Revolution against the British. He was wounded at the Battle of Yorktown, a decisive battle in the American Revolution. Guillaume was later down in Florida, and this time he was working for the King of Spain, who at the time was also king in Louisiana. And Guillaume helped expel the British from Florida. For all this fabulous military service, Guillaume was rewarded with a new job. He became the governor commandant of central Louisiana. So y'all think about that for just a second. Guillaume killed somebody. Less than 10 years later, he's a government official in Louisiana. Well, Guillaume meets and marries Nanette Prudhomme. Her family had come from Canada in 1699. They had three children, but in 1803, Napoleon sold us to the United States. So that meant that Guillaume lost his government job. So two years later, they arrive here with their three children and 17 slaves to set up a sugar plantation, but Guillaume died before the first harvest. His young widow was in her early 40s. Nanette had three children, this huge plantation in the middle of nowhere, and she took control for the next 21 years. This early 19th century woman ran this business, becoming the first of four generations of women in this family who ran this farm. She did it very successfully, but you have to understand that in this time period, wealth is not measured in cash. Wealth is measured in land and in numbers of slaves. 
Now that increases the property size to about 12,000 acres. Most of it is in virgin cypress forest. She also increases the number of slaves from 17 to 81. But after 1803, now the American immigrants are flooding here into Louisiana. And the Americans want the same economic success as the Creoles. But to do that, the Americans are also going to have to have access to the river. So let's take a look at this map right back here. Let me squeeze through the middle here. On this side is New Orleans. And over there is Baton Rouge. In the middle, the Mississippi River. That is the main commercial artery of the North American continent. This is very important. So listen, you are not in the American South right here. Louisiana remains an extension of the French colonial experience well into the early decades of the 20th century. And that is because the French colonists had recreated here the very same feudal system that they had known in Europe. If you've been to France, all along the Loire River, you've got the chateaux that are lined up along the river. If you've been up into Canada, to Quebec, along the St. Lawrence, you've got the Domaine and the Seigneurie. All of these people know each other. Many of them are related. And those people control the economy, the society, and the politics. But now the Americans are trying to break up these networks of these Creole people who've been established here since the early colonial period. They need land. So that means that Nanette, in this new American paradigm, is going to have to figure out how to protect her assets and how to beat the Americans at their own economic game. She's got to transform her feudal French estate into a modern American corporation. And so in 1829, Nanette legally incorporates a family business with her three children as the primary stockholders. The oldest son is named Louis Duparc. Nanette owns the farm. She can run this place. But the double standard in society means that as a woman, she cannot do business with men on the open marketplace. Her son is going to be the public relations guy for the company. The middle son is named Flagy. He will run the farm, and he will be the overseer here, and it's Flagy who makes the family fortune. The youngest child is Laura's grandmother, Elizabeth, and she becomes her mother's protege. Now, a startup for this family company, because you've got to have assets beyond the beyond the land, Nanette is going to transfer from her personal holdings to the business 79 of the 81 slaves. They are now what we call corporate slaves. They're owned by the company, and most of them are American. So that means they've been brought from the American South to Louisiana. They speak English, and they are not Catholic. For her own use, Nanette keeps two Creole slave women. Their names are Nina and Henriette. And they're Creole again. Why? Because they were born in Louisiana, they speak French, and they are Catholic. So now there are two separate categories of enslaved people here. Corporate slaves are owned by the business, and they're mostly American. Personal slaves, owned by individual members of the family, are almost always going to be Creole. They speak the same language, they share the same culture, and they felt, of course, they could trust Creoles much more than they could trust Americans. So Elizabeth is about 13 years old when her father Guillaume dies. And immediately Nanette takes Elizabeth under her wing to begin teaching her everything there is, not only about running the house, but also running the farm. Because here in Louisiana, you never know when a girl might have to step up and run a family company. She's 25 years old when she goes to a party in New Orleans, and there she's going to meet a handsome young Frenchman. His name is Raymond Locoul. They begin to court. Raymond proposes marriage. Elizabeth says yes, but on one important condition. Raymond has to sign a marriage contract. It's basically a prenuptial agreement. 
Raymond has to bring property to the marriage. So what he brings is his commercial connections to the Chateau Bonaire in Mérignac. Mérignac sits just outside of Bordeaux. If you're a wine drinker, don't be shy, raise your hands. You might know that Bordeaux is some of the very best wine in the world. So now, there's the Chateau, there's Raymond, and Elizabeth thinks she's going to get out, finally, of backwater frontier Louisiana, because the first colonists weren't coming here to stay. Their idea is to make a fortune and go back to Europe. And now she thinks that she's going to be able to get the hell out of here. But there are always going to be family and society circumstances, there are epidemics and there are wars, and they trap Elizabeth in Louisiana. She never realizes that dream to go back and live in Europe. Elizabeth outlives her husband, she outlives her two elder brothers. Elizabeth navigates the business through the Civil War and the Reconstruction period. And when she finally decides to retire many years after the war and divide this place between her two kids... Elizabeth has been the driving force in the family company for 47 years. And businesswomen like that don't come along every day. One trait that sets Laura Plantation apart from the common idea of a southern plantation is the design of the main home. In contrast to elaborate mansions, the Laura Plantation home was built with efficiency and heat regulation in mind. To combat the Louisiana heat and humidity, the best homes were built by enslaved Senegalese and Gambian people who used knowledge gained from their homelands and that was passed down through generations. Here, Joseph explains the intricate details of the plantation home design. And Olivia, what's fascinating about being on that tour and learning things like that is that you see how the slaves, the other enslaved people, were actually selected and brought over based on their skills, not just people just kind of grabbed and brought over on the slave ships, but they were all selected based on the skills that they could bring over to the Louisiana Territory to add to the plantation life there. And in turn, that kind of established a hierarchy on the plantations, too. It did. It definitely did. As a reminder, the Civil War takes place between 1861 and 1865. And before the Civil War, if you wanted to build a house like this one, you would need to own a skilled slave to supervise and coordinate the construction. The very best builders here are the descendants of the Senegambian slaves brought in by the French in the 1720s. If you did not own such a slave as that, you could rent one. This is exactly what we believe that Guillaume Duparc did. This man was identified in New Orleans. His owner was paid a fee for his services, of which he perhaps was able to keep a portion. He was brought out here to the farm, and he was told to build une maison de trente a house of 30. And these men were such skilled builders and artisans, and they passed these skills from father to son, father to son over many generations. You could give them a number, and they would then build your house or any building based on the number. But how? You look right up here where this light is shining on the beam, and you will see there's a wooden peg, and just next to it is a Roman numeral 15. Right here is a number 14. There's a number 13, and there's 12. It goes all the way to 1 on that side and all the way to 30 over there. That means there are 30 horizontal beams with 30 vertical posts, and they interlock with the wooden pegs in the inner walls of the house. There were no metal nails used in the original construction of this building. That man spent nearly a year in the swamps behind us with a team of slaves, he supervised them in the cutting, drying, and numbering of the wood. Above your heads here is all the original virgin cypress that was put here back in 1804 and 1805. In the meanwhile, 
there was another team of enslaved men here building these foundations. And Laura writes in a letter to her cousins that those men assembled this house. They put it together in 11 days. All they had to do was to line up the numbers and put the pegs in, and voila, a 200-year-old prefabricated Creole Ikea house. Outside, all of the dirt is alluvial material. This is a delta. It's been built up over thousands of years of the Mississippi River flooding. It's great and fertile soil for growing sugarcane and banana trees and tropical flowers, but for holding up big houses, it's not very stable. So all the brick columns and walls around you go eight feet into the ground. There are dozens of brick pyramids under your feet which touch each other at the base to hold the house up. But the water that flows in the river in front of the house is coming down from the Great Lakes and Minnesota and places where it's very cold, which it isn't in Louisiana. Um, but the water in the river is very cool. And because the river is just right there, the groundwater table is right under our feet. That cool water seeps into the porous handmade bricks, comes up through capillary action, and when the breeze blows through in the hot summertime with the evaporation of the moisture, you have a cooling effect, just like with a primitive sort of air conditioner. So that is one of the very reasons that these first Senegambian slaves were brought to Louisiana, and most of them were from the Bambara group. These people knew how to cultivate rice to feed the colonists, and they knew how to build things. Well, you have around you elements of African architecture that have been adapted into the form of a French farmhouse through the climate here in South Louisiana. Each property owner was responsible for maintaining a levee at different times the laws changed of between 8 or 10 feet. So there was not the levee like that. But if they were irresponsible property owners, you had no real continuation of the levee, right? So um, that is a 25 or 30-foot levee, and the big main um, uh, Army Corps of Engineers project was begun in the 1920s, late 1920s. So they got a lot of flooding on the field. They did. They did. Which is really good fertilizer, absolutely. It's good for rice. It's good for rice. And cane. The Duparc family developed a way of life that revolved around the sugar farming season, they all lived on the plantation during the season and would then retreat to New Orleans over the winter holidays. While the siblings of the Dupark family lived and worked together, so too did the enslaved people they personally owned, as well as those who worked for the corporation. Joseph explains how a hierarchy was formed with the enslaved plantation workers in the fields with less status and the personal slaves to the Dupark family having more status. Here Joseph explains the hierarchy in more detail. You should understand that these Creole plantation houses are not the primary residences for these planter families. This is basically the seat of the family company. They're here for nine months of the year between April and December for the sugarcane season. Harvesting is done right before Christmas, and at that time, everybody's going to leave and go back to New Orleans, where this family owns very nice townhouses in the city, in the French Quarter. They're there for Christmas and the succeeding social season, which includes the opera, the balls, Mardi Gras. They stay there through the Catholic season of Lent and come back here after Easter to begin cultivating sugarcane again. So these people's lives are completely uh, following the agricultural calendar and the calendar of the Catholic Church. This is a multi-generational household. In the beginning, there's Nanette, her three children, then their spouses and their children who live together in this house. So y'all have brothers and sisters. Yeah. Imagine how much fun that would be to live all together in the same house and also to work with those people every day. Because if you're born into one of these Creole planter families, you are also automatically a stockholder in the family company. And when you become an adult, everybody has a role and responsibility to play not only to the family, but also to the business. 
It is also an integrated household. Downstairs, I mentioned Nina and Ayet. And as a reminder, those are Nanette's personal slaves. Nina and Ayet work in this house, eat in this house, sleep in this house. They live here. This is their home, too. In fact, there are enslaved people omnipresent in this household because every member of the family owns at least one personal slave, even the children. And any time you see that family member, that enslaved person is always going to be there right next to them. They accompany them when they go to the city or even when they go on family or business trips back to Europe. You should also understand that there is a very defined social hierarchy among these enslaved people. At the very bottom, the most numerous slaves work in the fields because they make the fortunes for these planter families. In the middle, there's going to be a very skilled slave group. And these are masons and carpenters and blacksmiths and coachmen and cooks. But at the very top, very top, what we call in French, esclave de confiance. These are the domestic slaves who live and work with the family in the household. And in many cases, what's going to happen at those upper two tiers is that roles and responsibilities are transferred from mother to daughter and father to son over several generations. So you can imagine that with four generations of owners and slaves living together in this household, there can be some complicated and even intimate relationships that develop among them. Nina and Ayet are mentioned in family letters. We know that Nanette paid for midwives to deliver Nina and Ayet of their children when they were born. She never would have done that for the enslaved women in the fields. Um, let's be very clear, though. Integration does not mean equality. And we're going to see how that works here in a little while. Because not only are there enslaved people here who might be considered to be, in some cases, like members of the family, but we're also going to see that there are actually members of this family who were born into slavery. In episode two of the Louisiana State Quarter, we'll dive further into the deeply intertwined family tree. But before we go, here's one last story of the fate of Louis Duparc's daughter, Elisa. As the daughter of the eldest Duparc's son, Elisa stood to inherit the family plantation when she was of age. Instead, a medical procedure gone wrong forever altered the story of Laura Plantation. Now, if you turn around and take a look at the back wall over here, all the way to the right is a yellow piece of paper, and that is the first page of Laura's memoirs. So if you look closely at that, you can see that she wrote them in St. Louis and Missouri in 1936, and you'll also notice that Laura wrote them in English. That's a very important clue for us because it tells us that Laura made the conscious decision to become American. What does that mean? That when she married and she left Louisiana and she moved to St. Louis, she left behind her language, her culture. She reared her children as Americans only speaking English to them, and we're going to see why here in a little while. Just next to that is the family tree with Guillaume and Nanette, the founders we met downstairs at the top. Laura's all the way at the bottom, and we are going to meet all those people at some point during the tour today. But the first man who lived in this room was named Louis Duparc, and you remember him from downstairs. He's the oldest son of the founding couple. And as the oldest son, he is a very spoiled and very privileged young man. He's sent to France to do his studies at the military academy in Bordeaux, but he doesn't like being at school very much. He prefers to be in Paris at the gambling tables. Well, there, he's going to meet a woman named Fanny Rucker. They marry, 
Their only child, their daughter, Elisa, is born in France. When they come back to Louisiana, they are the sweethearts of Creole society because they're young, they're rich, they give great parties, and they wanted their daughter to be perfect because we've already seen that it's possible here in Louisiana for a girl to grow up and run a family company. So they're grooming her for that eventuality. But when it comes time to present Elisa to society, which means also find her a husband, Elisa has a bit of an anxiety crisis and she breaks out with a horrible case of pimples. She's got acne all over her face and her parents were horrified because not only could they not present her to society, who would want to marry her with pimples all over her face? They tried everything to cure the pimples here. Eventually they went to France and there in Paris a doctor gave her an injection and she died the same afternoon. She was only 16 years old. They had a plaster death mask made of her face, and using the death mask as a model, they had a portrait painted. So if you have a look here in the mirror, we'll see a copy of that portrait appear. They had to wait in France for one year and one day before they could bring her body home, and they buried her about 10 miles up the road where her tomb still stands. If any of you are in cars and you want to drive yourselves up there to the cemetery, you can certainly do it. She's the very last tomb right by the levee on the left-hand side. Um, But following the funeral... Her mother, Fanny, came back into this room. She put the death mask on the mantelpiece and hung the portrait on the wall. And for the next 20 years, Fanny locked herself in this room, hardly ever to come out again, saying to all of her family and friends, I'm a murderess. I've killed my only child because of my greed and my vanity. I have to be punished. And this house, which had been the party capital, became the saddest and deadest on the river. Mm. And quite a story it is. There's still so much to unravel from the story of Lara Plantation. So far, we've learned that there was a strong sense of identity in the Louisiana Territory before it was acquired by the United States, and that even as Creole people assimilated into the U.S. education, language, and religion, there were traditions and customs that remained and can still be found there today. At first glance, the Louisiana Purchase symbol on the back of the state quarter may seem like a mere acknowledgement of the real estate deal that saw Louisiana become the first area of the Louisiana Purchase to be designated as an official American state. But looking at it now, perhaps it can also be seen as a nod to the Louisiana Territory that existed before the Purchase, a region with a rich developed culture unique from the rest of the country, and the powerful economic region fueled by sugar grown and harvested on the large population of sugar plantations along the Mississippi River. Join us in the next episode as we continue the fascinating and intriguing story of Laura Plantation. Because, L- Olivia, I mean, we really can't stop here. There's so much more that Joseph shared with us. And we will go deeper into the lives of the Creole family and explore the Africans who worked the sugarcane fields and lived with the family. They were actually part of the family. The story continues, and we will bring it to you. For more information about Laura Plantation, visit their website at lauraplantation.com. And for more information about the whole New Orleans plantation country, visit their website at neworleansplantationcountry.com. Quartermass Travel would like to extend our appreciation and thanks to the following companies, organizations, and people. The New Orleans Plantation Country, Laura Plantation, Hub Destination Marketing, United Front Transportation, and owner, Dana James, Joe Banner, Kyle Mills, and a very, very special thank you to Joseph Dine.